Welcome to episode nine of Life on the Brink. And this one's all about the wonderful world of Tiggers. <laughs> it's our Tigger episode. I'm so excited. T-I-double-G-R. Oh, I am so keen for this. Do you know what the wonderful thing about Tiggers is? What's that? Tiggers are wonderful things. Their tops are made out of rubber and their bottoms are made out of springs. I can't remember the rest Nothing of it. Like good old fashioned Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> uh, yeah. But we're talking specifically about the Bengal tigers uh, for this episode. They're found across India and some of the surrounding countries. Uh, Their scientific name is Panthera tigris tigris. And I think you know what that means. Well, first off, I'm just going to say I feel very guilty because this one was a lot easier than the one you had to do last week. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, we'll start with Panthera, which comes from the word panther, which is derived from a bunch of older languages like Sanskrit. And it basically means pan, which means all, and thera, which means to hunt. And so it's basically all who hunt. And then you've got tigris. Uh, This one's a bit more, this one was a little bit, bit harder to find the exact meaning. There's a two main theories. So first is that it comes from Tigris River or a word Tigris, which sort of means to flow quickly. Uh-huh. And the other theory is that it either comes from the Persian word Tigra, which means pointed or sharp, or the Avestian word Tigri, which means arrow. And the thought behind that is that it's referring to the speed of the tiger's leap. And so we've got a, basically a hunter that is also an arrow. <laughs> <laughs> or flowing <laughs> so very descriptive panthera tigris tigris there you go and yeah they are just one of the subspecies um we we asked our guest on this show how many subspecies there are and he said who knows <laughs> it depends who you ask so they're listed as endangered and for tigers overall the global iucn red list says there's about 2.1 to 3.1 thousand left in the wild uh but our guest on this show is a big advocate for these numbers being not only very untrustworthy, but also kind of pointless. <laughs> yeah, our guest specializes in researching large carnivores, particularly these Bengal tigers in India. He's worked in the field recording tigers and their prey, and more recently has spent a lot of time and effort trying to figure out how to actually track the populations of such an elusive and wide-ranging big cat. Stick around for the audience questions towards the end of this one. We hear one of the most amazing stories that we've ever heard about coming face-to-face with a tiger. We also talk about what it's like to see a tiger and its cubs in the wild, why captive tigers are no substitute for the real deal, and the age-old question of why tigers have their stripes. (laughs) This is episode nine of Life on the Brink featuring the Bengal tiger and Dr. Arjun Gopalaswamy. Tiggers! Tiggers! So uh, what we might start with then is I do want to talk about your background um, and how you came from engineering effectively. Yeah, uh, that that was an interesting turn, I would say, in my life. Uh, Mm. I've um, been working in this field now maybe for two decades. And I have, uh, I actually did have an industrial engineering background before moving to wildlife. Uh, It's hard to pinpoint uh, why exactly that happened. But I can uh, kind of draw upon maybe two reasons. One was that during my engineering days, I did a lot of mountaineering. I was part of a mountaineering club. 
go out with friends and go to a lot of nature spots. And it also turned out that during my school days, I was uh, brought up in uh, an environment very close to nature. So probably the two things put together, something told me I have to do something for wildlife, something for nature. And the only way I would know if I'm really into this is to actually plunge and work with somebody. And it turns out I met a few, probably the right people, the very right people. And I got into fieldwork and um, probably my very first drive in the forest, something told me this is what I'll be doing for the rest of my life. So <laughs> it was as simple as that at the end of the day. <laughs> where where awesome. was that? So, uh, well, yeah, I worked with the Center for Wildlife Studies and Wildlife Conservation Society mm-hmm. under Dr. Ullas Karant, who's a kind of a pioneering tiger biologist. And straight away, I was in Tadoba Tiger Reserve in Central India, uh, at where uh, the idea was to count tigers and the food they eat. That was basically the idea. So it involves a lot of field work, essentially staying out of home for nine months a year and return home uh, during monsoons. Mm. Uh, so that that was uh, that. <laughs> so I've got to ask, you completed a uh, industrial sort of a uh degree. Did you look for jobs after that in the field or you just decided that it wasn't for you and went straight into looking for conservation work? I actually started a small company at that moment. That was a time when there was this, uh, you know, Y2K boom, as they call it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there were opportunities and software was always very big uh, from the region I come from. And um, it it comes, I mean, working on computers comes quite uh, naturally to, to most people out here and almost everybody do software related work. So I too got into the game and it was about a year I realized that desk work was not for me. But I also realized that since this was a company, I had to ensure that there are no debts. The moment I ensured that it was no profit, no loss, <laughs> this was the time to move on. Very <laughs> bad. You know, I didn't come from a lot of the what would what one would call a traditional background of uh, interest in wildlife. Usually you have a lot of bird watchers, you're part mm-hmm. of a lot of nature clubs, and then you get drawn in. I was uh, partly in one of those, but I just um, had a sort of different relationship with nature. I just just enjoyed being there like, like a lot of people, let's say. That's what kind of drew me in more than actually identifying a whole load of birds and trees, and then, you know, as a naturalist, you transition into the wildlife field, etc. So that was the connect, I would say. <laughs> I think that's a pretty good reason to get into it. Um, <laughs> so why big cats then? What sort of made you go down that path? Uh, that too, I think uh, it was the first. Um, I had I'd seen tigers uh, on, on a tour drive with my cousins uh, way back when I was in school. And, and that's definitely there in my memory. It's, it's, it's obviously a, a magnificent, magnificent sight to see a wild tiger. But I think the first sighting of a wild tiger while doing field work, it, it was a great sighting. It was on this road as we went out for field work early in the morning. So you're on you're on a jeep, of course, and, uh, about, let's say, about 20 meters uh, from them, 20, 30 meters. It was uh, a mother with four fully grown-up cubs. And actually, what's what's unusual about a sighting of a wild tiger is not just the 
how how beautiful the cat is you know, that we know you you do see them zoos but i think it's the the whole environment the sound of the dry deciduous forest you just have to breathe that air hear the calls the communication that you see and everything to do with with its habitat and that is something that instantly told me look i mean this is what you have to do i mean you this there's nothing better you could spend your time on so uh yeah i think that's that's what drew me yeah i mean that sounds like a pretty pretty amazing drawing point <laughs> it's the whole package put together which is why actually even if you do work on uh, let's say tigers or any big cat you actually don't see the focus species that often you're doing a lot of other work and you come across them once in a few days so it's not as frequent as one would think but at the same time it's that whole experience right it's, uh, at that one sighting is is uh, you cannot put a, put a price to that it's just uh, spectacular hmm. what was the work you were doing then at that time was it uh, mainly counting or was it were there other aspects to it as well yeah no it was stay straight away into understanding populations and uh, just basically understanding how many tigers there are mm. and how much prey there is to support the tigers so it was part of a, a much larger study and um, the whole the business of counting wildlife especially elusive big cats uh, has proven to be very challenging yeah so was it following this work that you sort of uh, got into your, your PhD? No, this was just field work as you know straight mm. after my bachelor's in engineering. Oh, cool. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so this was this was all uh, just a field work and basically I thought it was quite important to spend a lot of time in the field directly with with uh, you know hands-on projects such as these before knowing if you're going to make a complete uh, transition. So um it was later after that that I I did my masters in wildlife ecology and conservation at University of Florida and I worked with Professor Bell Sunquist who is a, who's really good with big cats and basically to get a lot of hands-on training with the carnivore skills as you call it you know capturing immobilizing animals getting that sort of training and um probably that's where some of my engineering background helped i would say because um, i had a quantitative mindset and so i could grasp the quantitatives that were involved in this field uh, quite easily and um, not easily i mean <laughs> i was not scared about numbers <laughs> and uh, and in the end uh, i sort of started to transition towards getting into the statistics behind all of this and uh, it turns out that 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 was quite important and people started valuing me more for this skill <laughs> uh, at the time and that's how the transition began there's there's a lot of conservationists who run away from the mess aren't they yeah when you were the, uh, doing, doing your masters then and and getting into that side of things was it still tiger focused or were you looking at big cats in general at that point So oh, actually that time I started working a little bit on bears. Uh, oh well. Wow. I I did two things there. It was one quantitatively I was working on a project with with some 
sloth bear data from India. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, to get hands-on skills, I was working with colleagues on the Florida black bear. There are some things that you'll see certain broad patterns with with a lot of these carnivores and the way they operate compared to other other species. So, yeah, so that was it. That was, uh, that was sort of my training. After my master's, I did return back to India and continued working on the, the tiger and prey project going on here. And um, then I got engaged in this larger program called uh, Tigers Forever. I was advising on that, that program, so that got me to explore and see and work with a lot of colleagues around Asia in several tiger habitats in uh, Malaysia, in Thailand, Indonesia, folks from Burma, even China. So uh, that got me traveling a bit before I started my PhD much later in 2010. By the time I got to my PhD, it was, I became more and more this quantitative sort of person and uh, and uh, i started getting more deeply into into quantitative research developing new methods and blending the stats with field work mm-hmm. and that sort of thing so that was the sort of skill uh, you can actually transfer and i have spent like the last 3 4 years maybe uh, focusing on that which led to some very large surveys on, on the lion projects in in Kenya and now also in Uganda and a few other places. The lion world is also undergoing this transition of understanding and counting lions, getting a better understanding of, of uh, how many they are, where they are, and, and things like that, which is sort of, I would say, a, a really ignored component in big cat conservation and were very crucial mm. as well. I um I guess following that um do you have an idea of how many tigers are, are left in the in the wild? Well, you know this this has been a this has been a big problem because the question you asked me is a is a a very common man's question, right? And we do want these bottom lines, and I just want to know how many tigers they are and for what we do not know. <laughs> whether you're a policymaker, whether you're the prime minister, whether you're the media, this is a very, uh, this is a question that's very simple in concept. But some of us have spent decades trying to answer, not exactly the question you are asking, like how many tigers are there in India? How many tigers are there in the world? But actually we have been struggling to answer this question for very small patches of land with a lot of work, relatively small patches when I say say 500 square kilometers, 1,000 square kilometers, or a little larger, the moment you stretch it to say 25,000 square kilometers, you're getting very uncertain. And that's the reality today. Uh, But this need for finding these single numbers, because it's popular narrative, has appeared to kind of influence the media, politicians alike, to actually speculate a lot of this. And that, in my opinion, has proven to be quite detrimental and more dangerous to the cause. Because this is a very difficult question to answer, but people feel committed to answer this question. And it's based on a lot of uncertainty 
and you're not able to tell like what's the error bounds around these some are just expert opinions uh, this is this is a pervasive problem you know all these charismatic species yeah yeah and it's um i mean it's something that i think pretty much everyone we ask the question of do you know how many are left will say either i have no idea or i don't think it's right to be answering that question because <laughs> right. because of how many issues they've run in with answering that question throughout, throughout their career <laughs> right. but i mean it is interesting how it is such a focus point as people always like to go we had this many last year and there's this many now um but counting them specifically in india has had quite a lot of controversy around it as well because it's such a difficult thing to do and then when someone says well they've gone up this year a bunch of other people will say have they really <laughs> you know and, and we'll call it into question um what's what's your experience been with how numbers get get used and decided on in india specifically then um well i think um, um this is this is a global problem all right so moment we talk about numbers it's very intuitive to anyone if i say look we have 1000 tigers today and maybe 5 years later we have 1500 1200 tigers it's very intuitive for people to say well it's successful right mm-hmm. yeah. now because of this because of the simplicity in concept people want these national figures and what has happened at least when it comes to tiger numbers in india is we have seen the science backing the claims of tiger rise is not matching up with the the claims but the problem is when the claim is made and there's a lot of press around it that stays and no matter if the scientific evidence behind these claims are either lacking or contradicting or there are a lot of uncertainties that gets lost completely lost and because you know the tiger is india's national animal there's a lot of money being spent on it and it's a globally important species it's the largest cat it's extremely charismatic it invites such politicization there are arguments always saying isn't politicization always good it is because you're giving attention to the species but at the same time india has reported uh increases in tiger numbers over the last 16 years all right there have been four massive surveys and uh, 1411 became what was it i think 1706 at that 2226 and then 2967 now if anyone just look at these numbers it looks like tiger numbers have doubled all right but the moment you dig into the methods the moment you see the contradictions coming out of it scientists cannot trust this but again all this is lost when you put a figure out there and the the reality is the the numbers have got highlighted and the science backing them has been sidelined then it becomes more a game of who can advertise the topic better and that wins the popular narrative and feeds onto almost a, uh, i would say as maybe a subculture in in terms of uh, viewing this because you would actually think conservation success is happening and obviously it is it is up to science and scientists to actually keep questioning this but it takes a very long time uh, for science to actually speak and influence policy and sometimes it can be dangerous and in in the world of tigers um 
in India, there was this technique called uh, pug mark census. You know, you identify individual tiger by their footprints. And uh, once again, until 2004, there seemed to be an increase in tiger numbers using this counting method, which was scientifically very flawed. It kept increasing. Suddenly in 2004, you realized that in one population followed by another key population, tigers went extinct. And these were very important populations. And then it kind of, you realize that this was a terrible thing to have done and you kind of changed methods. But it took, it took a couple of decades because now the numbers take precedence over the method. And in any kind of science-based view, you want the method to take precedence over the numbers. So the numbers are an outcome of practicing good science, right? And mm -hmm. it comes only as a byproduct in contemporary ways of counting animals. It comes as a byproduct. But actually, that takes the center stage, and you completely forget uh, the science behind it. And yes. that has been a problem, I think. <laughs> the danger here is, even if there are recoveries, recoveries don't actually happen all over India, everywhere. Even if there are successes, the, the problem in these centralized claims without adequate scientific backing is that in regions where there are good recoveries, they get lost. Mm -hmm. They get lost in this larger picture of aggregation. And I think we're seeing this in every field. You talk about, let's say COVID, you know? So we all know you can solve the problem locally. You tell your neighborhood to stay away from each other and you make it happen, COVID will not spread, right? It's a very local problem at the end of the day. But we all tend to centralize it, saying it's the, the person in, in, the, in the capital making the decision, influencing. Actually, if you stay away from everyone else, obviously it's not going to spread the, the way, you know, when we talk about social distancing or whatever. It's a very local problem. But now, if it, if it all boils down to something central, you lose information on where you're having successes and where you're having failures, and um, we lose out that information. And that has been a danger here. So, um, what are the what are the I guess the main ways of of counting them now? If 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 the the sort of track marking is pretty flawed, no, I mean uh, in in terms of technique, in terms of technologies, uh, you know, camera trapping has become a very popular way of counting tigers, and it's uh, it it gives you the information you need at what we call important populations. You can monitor year after year. Uh, it's proven to be very successful. But again, the key, key thing to all this is, what is the transparency behind this whole process? And uh, transparency has been an issue uh, in terms of India's tigers, because apart from the statistical technologies, which might be flawed, you would like there to be kind of independent reviews and assessments to ensure you're going on the right track, and that has not happened, which leaves a lot of doubt. Uh, you know, and it's a very unique part of our field, I would say, because when we talk about, say, tiger populations, lion populations, elephant populations, suddenly we are talking about a species and a study that involves large scales, right? You're not talking about studying, uh, let's say, a rodents, where you can actually have a, in a little farm. You, you can go out independently, set up your traps, get numbers, answer questions, but suddenly here scales enlarge. 
which means you now have to involve a lot of people. And when you do involve a lot of people, you get so engrossed only, let's say, in the idea of uh, collecting data, all right? And then you forget asking good scientific questions. You forget implementing good methods. Then someone else, let's say intellectuals, are very good at asking questions, you know, sitting in universities. You ask great questions. They have absolutely no time to go and see how to actually implement and get all this done. And then you have, let's say, statisticians developing good methods, all right? And they don't really interact in the field. So what happens, it's usually someone in the field says, look, I've done a lot of field work, here's my data, I hand it over to you, it's your job now. And there is, there is really no cohesion between the three. It calls for very different sorts of personalities to to actually engage because you can't say I'm a researcher, but I'm I'm not not very sociable, I'm not very good with people, then you fail in this endeavor because you need a lot of people. You know, so you can't be like a, let's say try someone trying an experiment in a chemistry lab, you know. So this yes. is a very different field. And you've got to keep this interaction going. Getting statisticians to come into the field, getting field people to get back into the lab. And that gives you the overall transparency and automatically you get very reliable numbers. In the moment you don't achieve one of them, uh, we have a problem. And I've been quite, uh, at least in some of uh, my research over the recent years, I've been quite critical about this aspect, at least to do with India's tigers. So even today, um, um, you know, I'm uh, quite good with the analytics but I usually refuse to get on projects where they say, look, I have data, here is. <laughs> uh, I say, I have to make a field visit. Don't ask me why, but I have to make a field visit. I need to see the whole process because it's only then um, uh, will all of this make sense, the ecology with, 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 with the stats. And I think when, when one of these are missing, you'll see actually we waste about 10, 15 years you know, to actually something that you will know instantaneously had you just made a small field trip, you come to know 10 years later because you've stayed away from it and you start getting lost. So you can specialize in one of them. I mean, that's what research is all about. You become very good at one aspect, but you have to be interacting with the other two and make the others interact with your world as well. I think only then do we start seeing successes uh, in this. So just going back a little bit, what are the main threats that tigers face? Oh, it's very, it's very simple. What well, obviously you remove their food for any big cat, the lack of wild prey. And let's say it's, it's a little different uh, from uh, say leopards. Leopards tend to be more adaptable to even domestic animals sometimes. Not prescribing that to be the approach, but they somehow just uh, do better because they, their requirements are a little smaller. But when you talk about tigers or lions, they're very dependent on large prey species, you know? So big deer, wild cattle, what we call gore. Hey, it's us, gore. Do you know what they are, Alex? Yeah, they're this type of bovine kind of cowy thing that are found in India uh, and they stretch down into Southeast Asia. Uh, they look 
like the body of a mini bison with the cow head stuck on the front. So perfect tiger dinner. <laughs> yep. Cool. That's all we wanted to say. Back to it now. <laughs> and the moment you, you start depleting prey, let's say due to excessive cattle grazing and even hunting, a lot of Southeast Asia, we worry about uh, the depletion of prey directly by by hunting, maybe legally or illegally, when you remove them, um, it really stresses tiger numbers. Is uh, poaching also a big thing in tigers or not as much? Uh, it is, definitely it is. There was a lot of threats, at least from China uh, initially, that uh, applied a lot of pressure in a lot of Southeast Asia and even even in parts of uh, India. Um, but it's a, it's, it's a balance and uh, it's completely dependent on the habitat you visit and the lo- and the cultural perception in, in those regions. So in certain places, let's say in a lot of parts of Southeast Asia, there's plenty of habitat for tigers still available. But actually, when you look at the prey numbers, it's severely, severely de- depleted. Even let's say in Northeast India, this is a big problem. And, and tigers disappear very quickly uh, in such, uh, such places. So which is more important? It's completely dependent on where you go at what numbers there are. Hey, it's us. So we're just going to give you a little bit of a recap of the threats that tigers face. Yeah. Put together from what Arjun said, we have prey and poaching, the IUCN Red List, the global database for conservation status and all this threat stuff. They list a bunch more. There's habitat loss to residential development, commercial development, agriculture, aquaculture and mining. There's also intrusions from people going into tiger habitat, changes to natural fire regimes and water systems. So, you know, just a few things listed as threats. (laughs) Just a few. And so... When you put those all together, that's earned the Bengal tiger subspecies an endangered rating. And globally, their wild populations are still apparently going down overall. Um, and so when we started asking Arjun about what sort of things you can actually do to save a tiger, he mentioned there's a big list of things like removing prey snares, engaging in education, protecting their habitat. But he said none of this matters unless you're actually counting how many tigers are left and where they are. Because if you don't know that, you'll never know if what you're doing is actually working. The only surefire way to know you are succeeding is you have to go out and count them and you know you have sufficient. So uh, and this has been a problem of species conservation initiatives because you can say all this, you know, I, we went out, we, you know, we removed snares that actually catch wild ungulates or even something that uh, we remove traps that are used to trap tigers. So we went and educated a lot of people. We did a lot of this and they're all activities to do with conservation. Let's make no mistake about it. They're all activities to do with conservation. But at the end of the day, then it should all show up in terms of recovering numbers. And that has to be done well. And I would also argue that you can do nothing absolutely nothing, none of these activities. But if your numbers are doing well and going up, you are succeeding. I feel a lot of conservation work should revolve around these sound metrics rather than go off on their own, which are all, let's say, useful work. But uh, I think there has been this problem with conservation in general that it has largely become a world of increased advertisements more than real action. 
And make no mistake about it, it's not to do with the amount of work people are putting in. It's just to do with, with uh, whether they are seeing results and actually measuring those results accurately. Yeah. Because I think we need tigers everywhere and we need to improve their numbers and their uh, distribution everywhere. Because what is true is that tigers have lost ground in more than 93% of their former range. Tigers in general, all subspecies put together. So you got to do it all because you've lost them from 93% of the range. So, uh, yes. Mm. I think something that catches a lot of people off guard is the range loss. Can you give a bit of a picture of where that range used to stretch out to and where they're just, they're just no longer found and haven't been for a, for a long time now? No, oh, it's uh, quite simple. So the large part of Asia, right from Caspian Sea, mm-hmm. right from to, to now you have tigers in Russian Far East, of course. And then you come down towards Southeast Asia, all the way, yes, up to Indonesia and back to India. So you have this whole, whole larger range. And now this gets into some, some historic records, uh, arguments about whether they shared ranges with other species. Sometimes we talk about tigers and lions sharing spots. But this is broadly the contour of where they are. But, you know, a lot of this is also speculations and, you know, understanding from um, historical books. Probably I'm not too good at answering this question, to be, <laughs> to be <laughs> honest, because <laughs> I've spent too much time seeing if they are they're doing well or not. <laughs> Trying to hopefully, hopefully uh, with, with a wish to see increases. Mm-hmm. I've never focused on the depressing part of that. <laughs> <laughs> To be honest. <laughs> I mean, across your time working with tigers and, and quantifying their numbers and their distributions, have you seen the range start pushing back into where it used to be? Uh, to be honest, uh, uh, my own experience in working with the people uh, in collaboration uh, is we do see there have been studies which have shown increases. Um, but let's say 10 years ago, there was a feeling that um, they probably will increase very fast because they are cats and usually good reproductive success with big cats. If the environment is there, they actually, their numbers can grow up very fast. But actually, in practice, we have seen that they can recover, but they are quite slow. They are quite slow. And this is largely probably driven also by prey, right? You, you, I mean, there's a, there's a reason they go down in number. And for it to recover, you do need prey to recover first, and then they respond to it. So it is a little slow. Uh, it's uh, it's not as fast as most claims out there seem to be. There have been recoveries. We have seen evidences from Thailand, parts of India, the Southwest India, even parts of North India. So it's not that they are not recovering at all. And like I said, we don't have enough of science-based evidences. So we do have a lot of anecdotal evidences which um, many are reliable. Uh, you know, I, I refer to some people who have been following landscapes and even naturalists who have been going to the wild for, for many decades, and they actually see a huge difference in numbers. So, um, yes, uh, I mean, that's, what, that's where we stand now. So, in, in your opinion, these, these low increases, do you think that they're enough to sort of uh, keep the, the species alive or...? 
do you reckon that the, the, the increases are too small and we might not be able to save? No, no, these, these are natural increases. As long as there is an interest, I think there's no reason to, to think they shouldn't because there is, there is collective interest to, to mm. save tigers, right? Um, but I think the most problems are associated not with the spirit here, but in terms of clear attention and action and science behind ensuring the, the goals are being achieved. And this is where numbers play a very crucial role because sometimes when numbers and, and changes are not reliable, it can also give the license to policymakers to think, oh, look, we are doing this very well anyway. I think we can afford to, let's say, increase development activities, for example, increase um, certain other damaging activities because we, we have this, we have proven that uh, you know, it's not a problem to save tigers because numbers are going up, right? So it can give you a false indicator to, to policy uh, makers. So I think the threat, the threat is more real than, than envisaged here because of what we read on papers. But at the same time, uh, it, is, it is also true that such speculations were even made in the early 80s, saying we won't have any tigers by the year 2000. But no, we do have, still have a lot of tigers. Um, not a lot. We still do have tigers, let's say, in India. And they are doing well. And we know we have identified the reasons why they can uh, not do well. So it's not going to go extinct. But, but what can happen is you can lose out a lot more because of these few problems that I mentioned. And a key being, we are not accurately measuring them where they need to be transparently and rigorously. Yeah. I mean, I guess the other kind of unique situation you're in with tigers as well is that there isn't, I guess there's not really a realistic risk that the species will go extinct overall. Extinct in the wild is a possibility, but extinct flat out is probably not just because of the huge prevalence of captive tigers in the world. Like you were talking about how all oh, the numbers are going up. Maybe we can start making developments again. Do you see that could potentially be a bit of a blase attitude towards protecting them in the wild? Because there's always going to be a bank of them sitting in captivity in Texas that could, you know, be used as a backup. Yeah. I think this, this relates to my very first, uh, first talking point with you. Um, one of the reasons uh, I was drawn into this field was seeing the tiger in its larger habitat, in, in the whole thing. It was not about seeing tigers in the zoo, which I'd seen many times. So um, it was a huge difference in terms of what a wild tiger is and a tiger in a zoo. The whole idea of species conservation or let us say tiger conservation, is about saving and preserving the whole ensemble of nature around it. You know, that, that, that really is it. And often species like tigers makes it easier to do so because they are attractive by themselves in the wild. Even the fact that you don't see it very often makes, it, makes them very attractive. And um, when you see them, in, in the wild, it's, a, it's not, that, 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 is the, that is what we call tiger conservation, really. Now, if there is a feeling, and actually you, you probably 
be able to sense the pulse better. If there's a feeling that captive tigers make up for this, it's it's not true at all. We, 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 it's well known that uh, you can you can raise tigers captively, you know, and in captivity, and that has never been a, a huge issue. But it's hugely expensive too, and we must understand that those environments are meant to only serve as educational opportunities to draw interest to the real wild tigers. And I think it becomes the responsibility of zookeepers and zoos in general to ensure that this forms a conduit to, to helping wild tigers and their habitats. So there is no substitution really because they have mm. No, folks like me will say they are not even tigers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's pretty fair. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, uh, it's time to get into your audience questions. And the first one needs a bit of a backstory. Yep. We're starting with a question from Dr. Alexander Bukowski. He was our guest from episode two on tree climbing lions. And he was actually co-supervised by Adjourn during his PhD. And he knew we were going to be talking with him. And he wrote a question of his own. We, we might, uh, so we, we always do this thing where we ask, um, any of the, like our listeners, if they, they have any questions. And so we've, we've got a few down and uh, we might jump into those now, but, uh, the first one actually comes from Alex. <laughs> he, uh, he wanted to know what your most memorable field experience with a tiger was or is. Yeah. Because there's no one single moment, but I would think, um, this was, uh, after, walking on what we call a, a line transect. These are early morning and late afternoon walks where we walk in pairs and you go around in an organized manner with a compass in your hand and a rangefinder in your hand and you take location measurements of the ungulates that you see, the tiger prey. So we had finished, uh, two of us had finished this walk in a transect in Tadova Tiger Reserve. And we were waiting for the jeep to pick us up. So we were waiting at the meeting point. It was late evening. It was beginning to get dark. And we heard some uh, roars. And we could hear them walking, lost in the brush. Uh, but it, it was walking towards us. Obviously not knowing we were standing on this uh, jeep track waiting for the jeep and we just stayed quiet and still the recommended thing to do just curiously waiting and the tiger actually emerged out of the bamboo barely 30 feet 40 feet from us not too far at all and looked at us and it was very memorable because as they were placing its Four feet, it stopped midway. You know, one of its four feet was up, you know, still, just like how you watch even cats do. And it looked at us, sort of not sure, just facing each other, nothing in the way. And because we were completely still, and the, probably the tiger was also curious, maybe a little not sure, 
it stayed in that position for a good 15 minutes. I don't know the, what the experience of my of the, the of the training I had with me was, but for me it was it was a mix of all kinds of emotions. One, there was a little, little bit of fear that did set in. I won't deny that it didn't last too long. It was a it was a it was actually a delightful experience. It was actually not as I mean um, my heart really didn't race. We were unsure what the tiger is going to do for sure, but we knew there was no other option but to just stand. So probably there was some, some, uh, some peace in that. And after about 15 minutes, the person who was standing next to me, at, uh, uh, a line transit trainee, his name was Vinod, uh, he was standing with me and he just sat down. I think he just got a little tired. He just sat down very slowly, but that movement, well, that was enough for the tiger to sense this is, they're not exactly trees here. So it's, it, it is, uh, they are animals, but just let's not risk it. Or I do not know what obviously uh, went through the, uh, the tiger, but the tiger sensed, still not sure uh, what to do it quietly turned back and went in, you know, but the, well, it was 15 minutes and uh, it's pretty long time. Overall, it was actually quite meditative. <laughs> and I don't know how to say so, because, uh, because our actions were very sure what we were going to do. We are not going to run away or attempt to run away from a tiger. I mean, <laughs> no matter even if I was Usain Bolt, it wouldn't count. But, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that, that was it. I think probably that's the most memorable uh, experience with, with, with the tiger. Apart from, of course, there were some experiences in, in Thailand. Uh, we actually went to call them and all that. But this, this sort of a sighting, uh, it was very unique because, you know, this was an opportunity. It's just face to face, just looking at each other. I mean, it's, it was a very unique experience. Yeah, incredible. I uh, that I just couldn't even picture something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but it obviously the experiences they always like to avoid conflict. Mm -hmm. So at least with humans, I don't know. I mean, never thought of. Uh, the exact feeling, but I think it was just there was a peace knowing that there's no other decision for you to take. <laughs> so, it's out of your hands. Yeah, yeah, and this is the best thing you can do. But honestly, uh, the fear just set in in terms of uh, what might happen, but uh, it never really felt like something dangerous will happen. But uh, it was unusual. <laughs> <laughs> So how does uh how did how did that compare to what what's an experience like catching and actually collaring a tiger? I have to feel like that'd be a very different experience to one walking out and staring at you. <laughs> yeah, I've actually had only one such experience in uh, in 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 Thailand where I visited them and there was this opportunity to basically learn how they do it, uh, and I was with that team. I was very again very lucky there because it was. Uh, we caught 
two tigers, a mother and a grown-up cub. Uh, so mother and the son, probably 10 months old. And uh, uh, that was, <laughs> of course, that was, that was unique too. And one thing about uh, these experiences, when you, when you actually tranquilize an animal, and this could be anything, or even catch them straight, you know, there's, there's a completely different relationship you get when you touch them uh, with the animal. And that is very difficult to, to, to convey. Um, so apart from this whole exercise of setting the trap, spending the whole night, you're waiting and then you hear uh, and you, you sense that the tiger has been caught in the trap and then you go out and uh, uh, somebody tranquilizes them. There, are, there is excitement in that whole process, right? That's, that's a different experience. Outside of that, actually, when you do tranquilize and you get your 40 minutes or 45 minutes to put your collar, take measurements, weigh them, and also just, let's say, smearing some alcohol on them to keep them cool or whatever you're doing, it's the moment you actually work on a wild animal, right? So suddenly your relationship with that animal grows uh, several fold. <laughs> Probably it gets you more deeper as your commitment to help the species in some whatever way you can. I think I think that's that that's what uh, kind of I I take back from that experience more than anything else. And this has this I've observed to be true. I had a colleague who took me out once, showing me alligators and uh, he once gave an alligator to my hand to, to just hold, you know, a small one. I was not that powerful to, to get the bigger ones, which is about three feet, three and a half feet. Suddenly, the whole concept of alligators changed when you hold one. You know? <laughs> so I think that relationship you strike with species uh, and you will see that with a, a lot of biologists who do spend time working closely with the with with the species, and they uh, and especially when they start learning about the species and get involved, they tend to stay with us for life. You know, something binds them to those animals when when they do. Oh, do uh, do you want to ask the next question, Gabe? <laughs> yeah, we've, we'll get back into the um, the audience ones. We've got one from uh, from Karen. Uh, who was asking about the target that WWF has set in the world, a worldwide fund for nature, about trying to double tiger numbers, uh, I think from 2010 to 2022. And she wants to know if you think that that's a feasible, uh, a feasible thing to do first off, and then what are the actual steps that may be lesser known to get there and to increase tiger numbers? Well, there are no secrets uh, to what needs to be done for tigers. Right. You have enough space. Don't poach them and have enough wild prey. They will recover. This is this all this. I mean, what needs to be done is quite sure. I'm not getting into the deeper details of how you get it done. All right. Each country, their environment, the politics of the country, the people involved make can make this happen. Now, the, the bigger deal is this whole thing about numbers. First, <laughs> first we have to ensure that uh, tigers also know about this plan. 
All right. <laughs> and uh, from what we have seen, scientific evidence to say that their recovery rates are much slower than previously thought. And so when we just talk about doubling tiger numbers at the level of across the globe, across many countries, it can happen. But whether this will happen in 12 years, I mean, even with, with the most effective interventions, evidences have shown that they grow much slower. All right. And you can talk about very, very small isolated pockets where you say, you know, you know, three tigers became five or six, you know, that's just like one event, one litter. You know, we're not talking about those. We're talking about these many, many populations. So 2022 is the Global Tiger Summit, which was decided in 2010. And this was the target set then. There was also a paper to say that this is not feasible and probably this doubling target should go to maybe um, a few decades and not, not so quickly. But the idea is this setting such targets at global levels like this should not induce unnecessary politicization without adequate scientific backing. Because then you start seeing these numbers fall in play, you know, and it, it just happens. And we know the tigers know how that happened. So, <laughs> so uh, yes, so, so, so to answer that simple question, what needs to be done, it's, it's very clear. Uh, I think most conservationists know it. And, but whether it's actually happening, has been has proven to be the much bigger problem. How do you know whether this is happening or not? Uh, and so this this question actually comes from my mom because uh, she's a big animal lover. Hey, we're back. Alex, is this a thing now? <laughs> Honestly, I think it might be. One of the most frequent question askers to date is my mom. <laughs> I think she's featured in maybe all but one or two of the episodes so far. Uh, yeah, either under the right. name Mum or Sue or Susan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I reckon we just make this an ongoing segment now. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm, I can guarantee you that for every episode, we can get a question from my mum. <laughs> <laughs> Subi's <it>. question time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into Subi's question time. <laughs> she wanted to know, um, is there a reason for why they're striped? <laughs> <laughs> you know the, the one of the things biologists do and probably I will do the same is we make up a story <laughs> and and just say evolutionarily there is an advantage of <laughs> of having these stripes in the sort of habitats they live in and if you view the world from the standpoint of the prey, they get deceived by these stripes. Let's say in, in grass, uh, it breaks up, their pattern is broken up. They are probably seeing in black and white and it, uh, it gets broken up for them. So evolutionarily, there's a reason that they are, this is nature, this, this is the usual, let's say, explanation. And usually there, there is some, there is some truth. Uh, in terms of evolution and fitness, 
that animals do develop the exterior look to suit uh, the habitat they're working in. Sometimes people even are thinking, let's say with with uh, black leopards and leopards, maybe they are attuned to dark dark forests, and so you know you have the melanistic forms in prevalence. People are probably thinking that about some black tigers. We don't know. We don't know, or whether it is due to isolation and one of the uh, recessive genes kind of dominate and populations look different. Um, so, so when it comes to stripes, I don't, I don't, I, I really have nothing more to say, but just <laughs> uh, tell you, the, tell you what most people will, you know, it's actually not very scientific. You know, you tend to tend to give all the explanations to evolution saying nature just knows its ways. So it has to be because of this. It could be true, but we tend to actually don't know how to confront these, uh, in, in scientific practice, so the doubt <laughs> remains there, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think that's all the audience questions. If people want to learn more about tigers or get more involved in tiger conservation or just what's the best way they can help tigers, uh, uh, do you have any recommendations? Well, uh, I think there is the best way, obviously, is to work with people who are doing this on the ground, right? And not too much at the intellectual level. The intellectual level, yes, you can read up papers, you can understand a few things, but all of this is connected a lot to something happening on the ground. So I think the real way is to engage with organizations and people uh, working hard on the ground. And that's when you really see the difficulties from the standpoint of what tigers face. So there's no substitute to first directly going and engaging uh, to, to discover the problems in the first place. And I think immediately then, irrespective of the field you come from, ir irrespective of the skills you have, every skill actually contributes to the cause. Whether you're a lawyer, whether you are uh, a, a, a statistician, whether you're a scientist, whether you're even an, just an activist, they will all contribute to the cause. And I think what tigers and a lot of other big cats need is plenty of these real skills uh, to be used. You know, you bring in your skills. And what probably does not help is all those where actually you don't see the cause and effect yourself, but you feel you're just sort of generally spreading the word or they're all important, but actually sooner or later, you don't know when you have the disconnect. Mm -hmm. So quite important to engage uh, in real terms with the people involved. I think that's the, the sure, sure, surefire way. And then the last thing we always ask is um, if you had one message that you think that people should hear about tiger conservation or about uh, your work in conservation in general, do you have one thing that you think is really important? Um, I think it's related to my previous uh, answer. Mm -hmm. I think many times, you know, if you visit a tiger habitat, you go look for tiger, even as a tourist, you actually contribute a lot to the cause. You probably do a lot more than let's say, holding random banners in irrelevant places uh, many times. 
And you know, actually, we we ask this question a lot. You know, one popular debate that's going on, but not really, let's say, with tigers, but with the lion world is should you ban trophy hunting or not? It's a very important question being discussed. And uh, there are both viewpoints. And some argue that, no, actually trophy hunting is helping because it's preserving wildlands as they are. And if you don't have that activity, it's replaced by something else. Now, I, at the moment, can't give you a, a clear answer to this, all right? But this is just a question I, I brought up. But I think now to, to solve that problem, Emotionally, it feels wrong, you know, trophy hunting, it's, it's, it's a very cruel thing to do. Now, what can you do as an individual to help the cause? It doesn't help if you just go on debating it anymore. No, I'd rather just go and visit a lion habitat, spend some time there and, and pay the lodges, pay whatever, go, go and spend money and see this. And I'll just view this, enjoy it and come back. I think you contribute a lot directly. And I think a lot of conservation is about real interaction with, with, the, with the species. I think if you invest your time going and spending uh, time in the wilderness and not just be emotionally affected by, you know, these are bad people, they are terrible people and getting lost in that, actually you just go and enjoy more of this actually starts contributing to a reason why we need to preserve nature for what it is, wild nature. First, people get a real attachment to specific places that they go to. And secondly, that's the only way in which you will actually argue for the case because now investments are coming in and people want it. The moment people want it, I think on the ground, people will ensure it's there somehow, you know, there is some advantage so, I mean, this is just one simple thing I can say. So if you actually have skills, you obviously want to do more. You know, if you are a lawyer, engage with local causes and see if you can win cases for tiger habitat, tiger land. But for a lay person, I think rather than getting confused about the debates going on, you know, and actually getting angry with each other, <laughs> just directly go <laughs> and have a look yourself and enjoy it. And I think that's a huge contribution. <laughs> that's a, so just forming an actual proper connection with these places and these animals. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's, that's quite important. Even if it's very local, even if it's very local, right? So you see, you see little parks and interests start developing when people go and show interest to that place, right? So it's important to give attention and a real... Uh, uh, attention to the place and then it makes it I think it does make a difference awesome I think that's a great message um, well I, I, I think that's pretty much it thank you so much for coming on it's been great chatting to you we really appreciate it and, oh uh, my pleasure I don't know we went on for quite long I didn't feel like <laughs> yeah sorry man. <laughs> it's it's so blue. I looked up about <laughs> 10 minutes ago and went oh geez that's been a while <laughs> Episode 9 of Life on the Brink was produced on the lands of the Turbal, Yagara, and Garingai people. We pay our respect to their elders past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty over these lands has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. A big, big thanks to Adjourn for tuning in from Bangalore, India, to talk tigers. 
He's on Twitter at Ajun Jiswami or A-R-J-U-N-G-S-W-A-M-Y if you want to keep following his work on tigers and other large carnivores. If you've got a second, please rate and leave a review for Life on the Brink wherever you're listening to this and find us on Instagram and Facebook at Life on the Brink Podcast or on Twitter at A Life on the Brink. If you follow us on Instagram, you can submit your own questions to the audience question segment. Uh, we usually forget to ask for them and then quickly put out a call right before the interview. So if you submit something, there's a very good chance we'll ask it in the interview. <laughs> <laughs> the first eight episodes and one bonus episode of Life on the Brink are also out wherever you're hearing this if you want to catch up on any of those. Or you can find them at lifeonthebrinkpodcast.com. Thanks to Angus Bazina for getting that website up and running. Thanks to Carl Morley for our theme music. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. TTFN. That's half an hour. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, I'm going to miss Tigger. <laughs> we do this every episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs>